Uh, welcome to Adult Sunday School. Let's, uh, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us uh, in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for feeding us so richly from your word this morning, for pointing us to, to Christ, the true King. We thank you for sealing your covenant promises to children and reminding all of us that we uh, are part of your body, those that you've called to yourself um, by your sacraments. Um, we thank you for this time that we have together to consider your providential rule over, over your church and over your people. Uh, you rule us by your word and your spirit. So uh, help us to, to pay attention to the to things that you would have us learn from this history. Uh, and thereby, we might give you glory um, in this effort. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Come on in. Have a seat. Um, Reverend Brown said that we were going to begin a new series, and that's sort of partially true. Um, it's not his fault for not knowing this, but we're beginning a new old series in that uh, the consistory would have us study church history uh, at least once during, during the year. Uh, typically, I think we're going to start doing this in the spring. And so I was encouraged both to do something on church history and then also to, to return to our series on Luther, which most of you may not even remember at all. Uh, a, few, a few of you remember. Well, that's good. That's an encouragement. Um, mostly it's my fault. We made a feeble effort to begin. We began well. It was three or four Sundays, and then it, it kind of came screeching to a halt. Um, and so we're going to return to Luther. Um, we won't start at the beginning again. I was going fairly slowly anyways. Um, we're going to return more or less to where we left off, uh, which is Luther in about 1518 or 1519. I'll, I'll say a few things to, to bring us back up to speed. Uh, but as it would have it, um, in God's providence, uh, we return to Luther right at the, the height um, of a particular political and ecclesiastical crisis. Um, for Luther. To return to Luther's life in 1518-1519 is when uh, a couple of crises for Luther both personally and then also for the church are starting to also become a a crisis for the empire. Um, And so here we are after this sermon, uh, after the Sunday school series on Christianity and culture, Christianity and politics, uh, and in the sermon series through first, uh, uh, first and second Samuel, which is very much about the political intrigues of, of kings and would-be kings in the history of Israel. Uh, here in Sunday School, we're going to look at um, Luther's life at the time when imperial politics really rear their head um, and, and, and insert themselves into the Reformation story. Uh, the Reformation story is, of course, a story about the church, about theology, um, but it's also a political story. Uh, and in a number of cases in Luther's life, politicians, princes, and kings um, insert themselves uh, for good and for ill. So it's interesting how, how God's providence works that way. I mean, it's sort of amusing that this evening sermon on, or series on, on marriage and on family happens on Valentine's Day. That works out quite well. Um, perhaps not so remarkable. We're, we're looking at Luther um, after doing this previous Sunday school series on, on Christianity and culture. So we'll return to Luther. Um, for the purposes of, of today, what do we need to know about Luther? Um, if you may recall, we started with Luther's birth, and we began very slowly 
um, trying to immerse ourselves a little bit in the medieval world uh, of, of Luther's, um, of his youth. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm a little under the weather. My whole family is sick, actually, and not even here. They have ear infections and the flu and all the rest. And, and so if you have questions, you should just bark them at me from a distance. Um, don't, don't come down front. It's good that the front two rows are, are empty. I'll try not to cough into the microphone. Um, in any case, we had Luther born 1483. Uh, Luther's born in, in Germany, not in a big town, in a, in a pretty small town. Um, and he's interested in spiritual matters. His family and his parents would rather have him study law. He goes off to university. The most important date in, in Luther's early childhood is 1505. 1505 is the lightning bolt incident. Right? He's riding his horse. This is a, a familiar story, probably most of you know. He's riding his horse through the countryside, going from this place to that, and there's an electrical storm. Um, his horse is spooked. He's thrown from the horse. Uh, lightning lands in the field nearby, and he's terrified, and he says, save me, um, and I'll become a monk. And so uh, his life is spared from the storm, and, and he uh, is true to his word. He enters into the Augustinian Monastery uh, at Erfurt in Germany. Um, and a gentleman I teach with at the seminary, Dr. Clark, likes to say that Luther really took the medieval church at its word in entering the monastery. If you want to be serious about spirituality in the medieval world, you become a monk. That's where the most authentic version of spirituality uh, is offered in the medieval world. And, and so Luther uh, is true to his word, and he takes the medieval church at their word, and he goes in to the monastery. Um, of course, then there are a series of spiritual crises that occur for Luther, particularly uh, surrounding the sacrament uh, of penance. Um, the, the way in which um, a penitent would go to a confessor and take a personal inventory of their sins consider their shortcomings, and make confession um, to a priest seeking absolution. And Luther was uh, a particularly introspective sort of person. And the more he thought about his catalog of sins, the more he interacted with his confessor, the more he became uh, spiritually depressed, uh, really spiritually depressed. Um, his, his father confessor offered him some hope and consolation, um, but ultimately... Um, Luther began to wrestle, even theologically, um, with penance. Could, there, could, a, could a merciful, kind God be found at all, Luther asks. Um, and so the Reformation story really begins with Luther uh, wondering, questioning, challenging the sacrament of, of penance uh, in, in his own experience, in his own spiritual life as a monk uh, in Erfurt. Then the other part of the story uh, becomes enters the picture, which is the practice of selling indulgences. Indulgences are part of the sacrament of penance for, um, for Roman Catholics still to this day. Sacrament of penance. There are a couple of different parts to the sacrament of penance, um, one of which is doing a work of satisfaction with your hands. The, I won't draw the pictures, my... my um, my handwriting is terrible, and my pictures are even worse. Well, maybe I will draw pictures. Why not? Um, the three parts of the sacrament of penance are to confess uh, with, your, um, with the heart, the mouth, 
this is a little man here. That's supposed to be a mouth <laughs> right there. To confess with your mouth, to have, to have true remorse and, and a sense of guilt for your It is really pretty terrible, I admit. Okay. You know, it's true that no one ever wants to play Pictionary with me um, on their side. Yeah, okay. Um, that's better. Okay. To con- well, we're going to move on. <laughs> Um, I'll try to draw a hand. There we go. Okay. Um, you'll all remember, though, the three parts of penance, I, I hope. Um, to confess with your mouth to the priest, right? To, to, in your heart, to have a true sense of remorse, of guilt, um, that, you've, that you've wronged God and violated his law. And then to do some work with your hands, some work of satisfaction, like give alms to the poor, say a prayer, visit a shrine, etc. Um, those are the three parts of, of penance. Um, the one that Luther struggled with the most was with the heart. How can you feel enough remorse as a work of preparation for God's grace? Can you ever um, feel sorry enough so that God will forgive your sins? Um, he had it all backwards, not realizing at the time that um, the fact that we have remorse for our sins is already a fruit of God's grace in our life. He really wrestled with, um, with, with contrition, with the work of the heart. Uh, with the work of the hands, the offering of, um, of alms to the poor, doing some work of satisfaction, that's where um, the practice of indulgences enters the picture. Indulgences were a way to buy, with money, uh, a piece of paper that allows you to opt out of the work of, of, of satisfaction. So rather than making a pilgrimage, um, I mean, if you were a particularly horrible sinner, your confessor could say, you should go on crusade to the Holy Land. Leave your family, your life for two years and go to the Holy Land and do a significant work of satisfaction. Well, if you didn't want to actually do that, um, you could simply buy a piece of paper, an indulgence, that would grant you um, a, a, a sort of ticket to get out of a work of indulgence. Um, well, Luther um, particularly protests the, the sale of indulgences um, as he's a pastor uh, in Wittenberg and, and still an Augustinian monk. Um, and so in 1517, the moment that we're getting ready to celebrate next year will be the 500th um, anniversary of, of the Reformation in 2017. The date you all know, October 31st, um, 1517, Luther nails 95 theses uh, to the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, asking for a debate about the whole sacrament of penance and particularly over the sale of indulgences and whether or not um, there's any theological basis for selling indulgences um, to reduce or remove the required works of, of satisfaction. And uh, no one really takes him up on the debate, uh, but the 95 Theses are, are republished and circulated throughout Europe, um, and slowly something that we come to think of as a Reformation uh, really begins. So 1517, the 95 Theses, Luther um, challenges and questions the sacrament of penance. And we talked a great deal about that. You can probably go back, and I'm sure the audio tapes are on, online somewhere. The next major debate uh, date in Luther's life 
1518 in Heidelberg. Um, I said that no one really asked, or no one really took Luther up on his uh, quest to have a debate over indulgences. Um, it, it wasn't until a year later when the Augustinian uh, uh, order summoned him to Augsburg, uh, sorry, to Heidelberg, um, to have a discussion about many of the issues facing the church. One included was the sacrament of penance. So Luther goes to Heidelberg in 1518, and, and instead of uh, discussing penance, he offers this uh, contrasting theologies, a theology of the cross and a theology um, of glory. And he accuses um, Rome of falling prey to a theology of glory, of aspiring power and glory for itself, um, and instead insists that the scriptures suggest and teach a theology of the cross, a theology of humility, uh, of, of, of submission to God's word. Um, that's what happens in 1518. You know, in other words, by not directing himself directly to the challenge of uh, the problem of indulgences, but by looking at broader theo- theological conceptions, glory versus uh, the cross, um, Luther starts to um, uh, teach more on, on the Reformation and, and draw a lot of attention to himself. <coughs> so, 1518, after Heidelberg, here's where politics begins to, um, to enter the picture. Um, we left off after looking at the, at the Heidelberg Disputation, 1518. Um, after the Heidelberg Disputation, the Pope in Rome summons Luther to come to Rome and explain himself. So, 1518, um, Luther gets a summons to Rome. He doesn't want to go to Rome. Uh, most, most troubled theologians do not want to be summoned to Rome, and if they are summoned, they do everything to avoid it. If you go to Rome, you, you end up dead for the most part. Or you end up tortured and imprisoned. Or maybe you end up having been forced to sign something, uh, recanting of your views. So Luther doesn't want to go to Rome. And what does he do? He very strategically plays a political card and insists that he's a German monk, even though belonging to the Augustinian order. He belongs as a German. And if he's going to be uh, put on trial... He insists that the trial be held on German soil. So Luther plays this sort of nationalist political card, insisting that a trial be held um, in, in, in Germany. And he has some support for this from, from Frederick the Wise, um, his, uh, his sort of patron. Well, 1519, um, the German princes are deciding whether or not to grant Luther, his request, and have a trial in Rome, uh, a trial in Germany, or to send him uh, off to Rome. And then something happens in 1519 uh, that's a bit of a game changer. In 1519, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian dies. So there's an imperial vacancy. I'm just going to abbreviate. The emperor dies. Um, 
to say something about the political structure of the empire might, might be helpful at this point. It's not that complicated, but, um, but some of these uh, names and, and, and people are important to the story. Um, how was Western Europe ruled at this time? Um, there was, of course, a pope. <coughs> and there was uh, an emperor. Um, the emperor was not, uh, was not the emperor by reasons of, of hereditary succession. The emperor was actually an elected position, which may seem sort of strange to us. Um, in fact, there were seven electors. And together, these seven men in Europe elected whoever would be uh, the emperor. Three, this is, this is some simple math, um, that even I can manage. Um, three of the electors were prince bishops, meaning they, were, they held joint offices, both as electors in the Holy Roman Empire, a political office, but they were also bishops in the church, um, important, powerful men then. Um, in fact, uh, one of the prince bishops was Albrecht of Brandenburg, that's probably totally illegible, but helps my brain to write it anyways. Um, Albrecht of Brandenburg was, was a prince bishop. This probably may be too tough a, a trivia question, but for the sake of Sunday school jeopardy here, um, anyone know why uh, Albrecht of Brandenburg is an important figure in, in the Reformation story? It has something to do with indulgences. Albrecht of Brandenburg was a prince first, before he was a bishop. But he wanted all of the tax revenue that came from the archdiocese of Mainz in Germany. And so what did he do? He bought the archbishopric of Mainz from the Pope. Um, and in order to buy this political office, had to take out a loan from the German bank, the Bundesbank, um, in order to, to pay the Pope. And in order to pay off the bank loan, he had to bring in indulgence sellers into Germany to, to, um, to raise money. And he agreed to split the proceeds of the indulgence sales with the Pope. So it's a pretty clever little scheme. You want, you want to buy a church so that you can take all the tithes, right? But you don't have enough money, so you go get a bank loan, and then you agree with the banker and the person from whom you're buying the office um, to have an indulgence sale and to split the proceeds of the indulgence sale between the two and also to pay down the bank loan. That's the scheme. So it's Albrecht of Brandenburg, one of these electors, um, one of these prince bishops who's at, at, the, at the heart of the story to begin with. But then there are also four um, secular princes. So three prince bishops and four secular um, princes, one of whom... I'm running out of room, so I'll just put it over here. One of whom is a man named Frederick the Wise, who's headquartered in Wittenberg. He's Luther's patron. So you have Luther's patron, Frederick the Wise, supporting this upstart German monk um, in his attack against another prince bishop. So there's, there's already a conflict right at the heart of the, uh, of, the, of the hierarchy of the Holy Roman Empire. 
Um, there, are, there are a few others to mention. So 1519, um, Luther's been summoned to Rome. He says, you should try me on German soil. Don't send me to the Italians. Um, they'll just kill me. And, and then when they're trying to wrestle and figure out what to do, the emperor dies. And so now there's got to be an election. And Frederick the Wise and Albert de Brandenburg and all the rest need to figure out who's going to become the next emperor. Um, well, here's an interesting thing. While they're sorting out when to have the election, Frederick the Wise is made acting emperor, which is very convenient for Luther. Really saved Luther's skin. I mean, in God's providence, the fact that Frederick the Wise should have um, acting powers as the emperor means Luther's not going to Rome. If there's going to be a trial, it'll be, it'll be in Germany. And so that's, in fact, what happens. There are a couple of imperial diets. Um, they do eventually have an election, and Charles V um, is elected the next Holy Roman Emperor. Um, Charles V, you might find interesting, uh, a devout Roman Catholic. Um, a, a kind of an oddball story tells, history tells us. Um, certainly inbred. Um, he comes from a long line of Habsburg rulers um, who at this point, they were, they were really quite inbred. Um, I mean, this is, this is not just sort of me casting nasty comments his way. Um, I mean, he had, he had physical appearances. Uh, it manifested itself physically. I mean, he was somewhat um, unusual to look at. In fact, he ate. He refused to eat in public. Um, he would only eat in private because of the way his jaw and face worked. He thought it was embarrassing. He didn't want to embarrass himself or anyone else who'd had to eat with him. Um, so he's a little bit of an unusual man. And eventually, he just he gives up on the whole, the whole thing. By the whole thing, I mean the Holy Roman Empire. He's, eventually, he says, I've had it with the Reformation, with the religious struggles. I've had it with these electors. Um, I've had it with the Ottoman Turks. Um, agitating and being aggressive uh, in the East. And so he abdicates. He just gives up and passes on his rule to his son. Um, in any case, 1519, uh, uh, Charles V is, is, is elected. So now the threat is back on for Luther. Um, <clears throat> and events start to speed up a little more quickly. Uh, 1520, in June of the year, um, the Pope in Rome is irritated that it's, been, that it's taken so long to sort out politically what's going on in the empire. So in 1520, the Pope acts to try to speed things along. And he issues um, a bull of excommunication, warning, warning that if Luther doesn't recant in 60 days, he'll be excommunicated. Um, so papal bull giving him 60 days uh, to, to recant. Well, in the fall of that year, I'll just put fall, October, November, Luther writes his most significant treatise on the relationship between church and state. Um, it's called The Address to the German Nobility um, in 1520 in the fall, right after the imperial election right after he's received um, this threat of excommunication. 
And in the address to the German nobility, he lays out many of the things that we've just talked about in, in the adult Sunday school classes. Um, the distinction between secular and sacred callings, his theology of vocation. It doesn't matter what you do. There isn't a certain set of holy or sacred tasks. It's the posture attitude of the heart um, that you take to any task uh, that, that, you, that you choose as, as a way of employment. Um, so he talks about all of that in the address to the German nobility, right in the middle of this con- uh, contest. But he also says something quite, quite provocative. Um, he says, in, in times of emergency, princes, meaning secular rulers, should act as bishops and call church councils. And this, is, this is an interesting uh, strategy of, of Luther's. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. <coughs> Early on in the Reformation, Luther really believed that the church was capable of reform of itself. I mean, he really believed that, um, that, the, that the truth would prevail, um, that if, if um, others like him, like-minded uh, monks, priests, and pastors, and theologians would simply open the scriptures, that the church would, would, would hear um, God's call and, and the church would be reformed. I wouldn't say he's cavalier about this, um, but you, you almost get that impression sometimes reading his, his letters. I mean, this is when, it's particularly early on in the Reformation when he jokes, you know, Luther, how's the Reformation going? And he says, well, I'm not really doing the Reformation. I'm, I'm just drinking beer, and the Word is doing the Reformation. Right? He's quite optimistic that this will all turn out well. Well, from 1519 to 1520, um, his hopes and aspirations are, are, are beginning to fade. Uh, and in fact, he starts, to re- he starts to think in 1520 that he's living in the end times, um, that, that maybe the church won't be able to reform itself. What if the, the, the person responsible for reforming the church at the top of the hierarchy is the, is the pope? What if he's the least capable of actually bringing about the action necessary to reform the church? What do you do then? And so he plays this card saying princes, secular rulers in times of emergency should step in and reform the church. If the Pope's incapable of it, meaning the Italians, um, then the German princes should, uh, should reform the church. Well, that's not likely to win him friends uh, in Rome, but the German princes are starting to really rally to his cause. <coughs> well, what does, what does Luther do um, Christmas time of 1520, at the very end of the year, Luther has a little party in Wittenberg with some friends of his from the monastery and from the university. And in December of 1520, he burns, they have a bonfire in the center of Wittenberg, and he burns the papal bull threatening excommunication. Right? I mean, he's sticking his finger in the eye of the papacy. But he does something else that's really pretty interesting and, and, and oftentimes forgotten in the story. People make a big deal about the fact that, that Luther burns the papal bull, threatening excommunication. And it's, and it's a pretty significant thing. But as a legal document, 
this, has, this is a document that has only to do with Luther. It's just about him personally. And the Pope excommunicated people all the time, all sorts of people, big people, little people, and everyone in between. So on its own, it's not that significant that Luther would burn this one document that was no doubt relevant to him, but maybe of, arguably of, of little importance for the rest of the church. The other thing that he burns in his bonfire with Philip Melanchthon is he burns canon law. Right? So I, I probably shouldn't make an analogy to, um, to our sister here, but it's as if burning the threat of excommunication is burning you know, a letter that, that your pastor might send you. Um, burning canon law is like taking the church order and the confessions and saying the whole thing, right, is useless. I mean, he's, well, he's burning the legal structure for the medieval church. Um, so this is a, a, an act that caught everyone's attention, right? He's saying the whole legal structure on which the church is based um, is, is useless. Well, um, it didn't go... Uh, unnoticed. <clears throat> I'll finish the timeline here pretty quickly. Um, we're running out of room. 1521. We'll start back up at the top. January 3rd, 1521. The, the 60 days expired. January 3. And, and Luther's excommunicated. Um, and that, that act has never been undone. Luther's been excommunicated uh, as far as Rome is concerned since January 3rd, 1521. And they renew this call to bring him to Rome. And, and here's especially where the legal wranglings come in, and um, we should probably say something about that later. I don't want to get too bogged down here. Luther's German princes are still refusing to send him to Rome, Frederick the Wise and the four secular princes um, three of whom are German. And because he's excommunicated, he has no legal status in the empire. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a, a, a legal loophole. Once you've been excommunicated by Rome, you essentially lose your position. You become a non-person in the empire. You have no legal status. Well, how do you summon, summon someone to a legal trial when they don't exist officially, right? It's sort of a legal loophole. Everyone knows Luther's in Wittenberg, and if we could just get him here, we could kill him. But it's a question of well, what kind of paperwork do you send, and who do you get, who do you get to, um, you know, to knock on the door and, and give Luther the, the legal summons and all that. Um, so they, they, they try to figure out what to do, and, and Frederick the Wise is powerful enough within the empire to insist, okay, let's have a, a sort of reckoning. Let's figure this all out. Let's have an imperial diet um, that has uh, legal... Uh, political importance within the realm, but then that's conducted by the church. So we'll have this kind of joint uh, political and, and, and church trial, which happens 1521 um, April, the Diet of Worms. And this is, this is probably a story you, you all know well, and we can circle back to it. It's actually it's a very interesting story. This is one of the iconic moments uh, of the Reformation. This is when Luther stands before Charles V is there, the new emperor, right? The Pope doesn't come, but he sends um, a whole series of cardinals 
a, a papal army comes to, to Worms. Should be an S on that. Um, and that's where Luther stands before the emperor and gives the here I stand speech, right? Um, and, and, uh, and, <clears throat> and you, you probably all know that story. So 1521, Worms, Luther gives the here I stand speech um, saying, unless I'm convinced by scripture, um, my conscience, I can, I can do no other than continue to teach what I'm teaching. I won't recant of my views. And what happens, he's condemned at this imperial diet. Um, 1521. He's condemned. Uh, he goes back to his cell. The princes, those in charge of the trial, legally try to figure out what to do. They agree to sleep on it for the night. And the next morning, it's a bit mysterious what happens. It's one of the great stories of the Reformation after the Here I Stand speech. Luther disappears. He's kidnapped. No one knows at the time who took him. I mean, we know now in history, but he's kidnapped. It could have been any number of different people. Uh, immediately after the trial, before, it, before they uh, adjourn, the Spanish army that had been sent by the Pope are calling to simply take Luther out immediately and burn him as a heretic, right? Um, but the German princes are there, and they won't let the Spanish um, or those loyal to, to the Pope simply make off with Luther. There's also a, a, a kind of a, I hesitate to call them a terrorist group, but, but there's something like a terrorist group. Um, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I guess that would be the more diplomatic way to put it. Uh, there's, this, there's this unusual group called the Bunshu. Um, a group of, of peasant, uh, a, it's a pretty large, like a 30,000 um, uh, uh, swords group of, of peasant revolutionary fighters fighting against both the Pope and Rome and against the, the, the seven electors. And we know that they're in Worms because the night while Luther's sitting in his cell thinking about um, whether or not to, to recant, the Bunshu group are putting up posters all over Worms, warning everyone that they're there. In other words, they're in time. It's sort of like, um, you know, recently when, when, when President Obama was somewhere and there was the, um, you know, the, 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 what do you call it, the plot? That's probably a bad example. Never mind. In any case... <laughs> Uh, there are, there, there's this revolutionary group that's in the same city with the Holy Roman Emperor, right? So the security details has maybe been a little lax. Um, they've allowed this, um, this terrorist organization to get, to get close. And so the whole city is in chaos. And then the next morning, Luther gets on a horse, surrounded by a group of armed and masked men, and just rides off and disappears for a year. It's, I think it's a really interesting story. Um, it turns out, we'll come back to this later, it turns out he, he's taken off to a castle, the Vortberg Castle, and he grows a beard, and he adopts a... <laughs> that's good, yeah. And he drinks beer. Uh, uh, maybe not amens for that. And he translates the Bible. 
um, and has this little year hiatus. Um, well, you know who you know who kidnapped him? Um, it was Frederick the Wise. It turns out to 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 give away the story. Frederick the Wise probably should be nicknamed Frederick the Cagey. I mean, he was he was a cagey one. He left before he had his armed guard kidnap Luther, so that he could say he didn't know anything about it. And he told uh, those in charge of kidnapping Luther not to tell him where they'd taken Luther so that he could always maintain deniability. Um, I don't know where he went uh, or who took him, but he did. He knew, and in fact, the Fortburg Castle was one of his castles. So Luther was there safely being protected by, by this prince. Well, this is the crisis. This is a little cliffhanger that we'll, where we'll leave off today. After Worms 1521, Here's the crisis. It's certainly a personal crisis for Luther, personally, as an individual. I mean, his life is in, is in danger. There's every reason to think he could very easily have just been taken outside and, and burned at the stake in 1521. Um, but it's also <coughs> a crisis for him ecclesiastically and politically. Because um, politically... He is now in civil disobedience. He's been found guilty. Um, and so his status within the empire, he's a criminal. And ecclesiastically, he's a heretic. Right? So we have civil disobedience, charges of heresy, where he's been found guilty. And all of this leads to great personal... That's the threat. Those are the series of crises. And, and, and that's where we're um, going to start off with, with Luther. As we, as we move forward. I think we end in like five or ten minutes. I'm not exactly sure. Five, five-ish minutes. Um, here's what I thought we'd do. I thought for, for the next two weeks, we might kind of go back um, and do a little jaunt through church history to think about um, the relationship of, of church and politics or church and empire um, that, that produces this very complicated situation of a pope and, and four secular uh, electors and three prince bishops. How does the Pope and the church have so much power with the empire? Um, building off of, in other words, you know, extending our Sunday school series on, on Christianity and culture. It might be interesting just to jump through church history quickly and, and, and touch down on some of the key events where you end up uh, with this situation. This situation has a name, by the way. It's called Christendom. a Christian empire with a kind of mishmash of ecclesiastical and political jurisdictions. Who's really in charge here, right? The church with its um, input here, the secular rulers, the emperor. Um, it's a very confusing, complicated story, um, and, it, and it has a backstory. So I thought we'd, we'd go all the way back to um, the early church, look a little bit at persecution of the church, um, when the empire is still pagan. And then we'll look at this fundamental um, uh, moment in church history, the conversion of Constantine. The emperor is converted to Christianity, and, and, and Christendom has its birthday on 312, um, I forget exactly what month it is, three, the year 312 AD, um, Constantine's converted, and that's sort of uh, the beginning of Christendom. Uh, and, and we'll move pretty quickly, we won't go at a snail's pace. We'll look at especially some of the medieval developments 
um, or canon law was formed. Another way of thinking is what, what, did, what did Luther burn in 1520 when he burned canon law? He burned the story that we're going to try to tell um, for the next two weeks, and, and then we'll look at other aspects of Luther's life. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah. That's a hard one. I, I'm not sure I, I don't recall that from the news, so I'm just trying to imagine what he was saying or thinking based on what you've said. And so that, the Christians have been as bad to other people as, as, as Muslim terrorists or something have been to, 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 well, that's a, that's a bold claim. I think it'd be, um, it'd be hard to, to, It'd be hard to defend that claim, but I can imagine real, certain reasons why, why someone would say that. Um, I mean, the history of the Crusades, we won't, we won't have time in this, um, in this series the next two weeks to talk about the Crusades, but we could do something in, next year when we circle around to church history again. We could do something on the Crusades. On the, Crusades. Um, the Crusades, in short, were, were certainly not the church's happiest hour. I think that goes without saying. Um, and they really did really pretty despicable things, um, both the other Christians, um, not just not just Muslims, um, but to other Christians. I mean, one of the famous story is um, I forget exactly which crusade, the third or the fourth crusade. Um, the Western armies are all you know they're all marching um, east, and on the way they stop in Constantinople, which is one of the um, five ancient um, patriarchates. There's a Christian church there. Constantine's son builds the Church of the Holy Wisdom there. Um, it's part of the um, part of the church, and the Western armies simply sack the city and destroy everything and take all the wealth. So these are other Christians. So it's certainly true that um, you know in the medieval period that the church did all kinds of of, of wildly inappropriate things. Um, and we could talk a little bit. That's about the best I could say about that. You know, to, to end on a little more positive note, um, well, I mean, maybe not, not to just, um, you know, put, put lipstick on it, but Jesus promised that the church, um, that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. He didn't promise that the church would always sort of rule with glory and with splendor and would always be on the right side of things. Um, I mean, that promise that the gates of hell won't prevail uh, against the church implies almost, doesn't it, that the church will go through some pretty dark times. Some of those times are of their own making when we think about, um, particularly, the, the medieval church. And so we're going to try to um, tell a sort of more balanced view of this to try to understand how revolutionary Luther and the Reformation was when it comes to, to church and politics. Um, I think that's all the time we have for now. Someone's motioning at me. Um, let's, let's pray. <coughs> Great.
Gracious Father, we, um, we thank you for the person of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, um, through whom we have pardon and peace with you uh, through the blood of the cross, through the blood of the covenant, um, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Um, help us to fix our eyes uh, on, on your Son uh, on, and on his kingdom and in his uh, wise and kingly rule over us. Um, we know that we seek no lasting city here, um, but we look to the city which is to come. Uh, may this day be a day of rest for us, a little foretaste um, of that heavenly rest to come. For we ask uh, in Jesus' name, amen.